Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 25 through 29. One moment. We're reminding ourselves what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. And we've framed it in these terms that Paul is telling us that we need to fight for the gospel. We've been reminded that this fight for the gospel is not only primarily a fight that happens out there in the world, but that this fight is also something that is happening within the church. That the church is actually fighting for the gospel. And how quickly the Galatians had been deceived to move away. The gospel had been distorted. The gospel had been confused. Paul even accuses them of, of believing in another gospel, and then he quickly says, not that there is another gospel. And you would think, these churches that Paul is writing to, these are churches that he planted. He was there at their inception. He was there from the very beginning what kind of foundation did Paul lay for these churches? A foundation, nonetheless, that was built, no doubt, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet what had happened? Maybe it makes us think this morning for a moment to say not only should we be fighting the gospel in the world, fighting for the gospel in the world, not only are there churches out there in our country and in the world who need to hold firm and hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we're fighting for it right here, right now, in this church. And that before we think, other people out there need to get their acts together, get with it, we would have humble sense of self-examination. To say and ask, am I fighting for the gospel? So with that in mind, let's read Galatians together. Would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word this morning? I'm going to read Galatians 3, verses 25 through 29. After I read 29, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together... Because we're thankful, we'll say, thanks be to God. To read God's word. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. All wise Father, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, that we may be blessed in our doing. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. One of the well-known events in the life of Jesus Christ is his encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus, don't you? You remember maybe about singing of him in Sunday school, that he was a wee little man, that he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see? What else do you remember about Zacchaeus? He lived in a city called Jericho. He was a chief tax collector. But he desperately wanted to see Jesus. And because of his small stature, he could not see through the crowd. And so he ran ahead of Jesus to climb into a sycamore tree, only to have Jesus stop under that tree and tell him to come down because he was going to his house that day. It says there in Luke 19 that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. But others, others reacted very differently. They grumbled against Jesus, saying that he had gone to be the guest of a sinner. Doesn't Jesus know who this is? This is a tax collector. This is a traitor. This is one who has turned his back on his own people. This is one who was employed by the Romans. The one who is a thief and a liar. The one who collects more than he needs to to line his own pockets. This is one who fleeces his own people for his own sinful desires. And he is seen as having no spiritual advantage in the eyes of the Jews. He is spiritually bankrupt. He has nothing. He is on par with prostitutes. But what happened to Zacchaeus? He was radically changed by Jesus. Is there any other kind of change that Jesus does? Do you think change is possible? People often hate change because change is painful. But when Zacchaeus met Jesus, something happened. The pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. And so when he looked at his life in the light of the glorious Savior, he welcomed change and welcomed it gladly because he knew who Jesus was. 
because of who he found Jesus to be. But that's not quite right, is it? Zacchaeus didn't find Jesus first. Jesus found Zacchaeus first. And after Zacchaeus says of all that he is going to do to repent, all that he's going to do to repay those whom he's cheated, Jesus says this about him in Luke 19. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save those who are lost. Look at it. Wasn't Zacchaeus already a son of Abraham? He was a Jew after all. No, what is it? Paul agrees with Jesus. It's those who have faith, those of faith who are sons of Abraham. We think about this salvation that Zacchaeus came to know. Jesus gives gives us some categories in how we think about salvation. There are those who are lost and there are those who are found. The lost don't know Jesus. The lost have not put their faith and trust in Jesus. The lost have not repented of their sin. They remain in their sin. But what is even more, not only are they lost, they don't even know who they are. They try to make themselves into something they can and try to find identity in the world, but it's all a facade. And behind all of their man-made identity is an empty shell of a person. They are lost and confused because of their sin. And Jesus, coming to seek and to save the lost, is their only hope. It's our only hope. It's the only way that they will be found. And the only way that they will find their identity. The only way that they will find out who they really are. The only way that they will begin to understand all of the advantages that are theirs in Christ Jesus the only way that all of the confusion will be cleared away so that they know their place in this world. And how comforting to know that Christ sought me and saved me so that I might know all of the advantages that are afforded to me in Jesus Christ. Paul is putting an exclamation point on his argument at the end of chapter 3 by saying, here are all of the advantages that you will ever need in the Christian life. All of the advantages that you could ever dream of. All of the advantages that you don't even know that you need are already yours in Jesus Christ. And we said this last week, the gospel doesn't get you ahead in life. The gospel, or the gospel doesn't get you, uh, let me say that again. The gospel doesn't make it so you can get ahead in life. The gospel gets you ahead. Right? The gospel doesn't make it so you can get ahead. The gospel gets you ahead. It puts you in an advantaged position. It does more for you than you could ever ask or you could ever even think. And as we begin, began to see last week, Paul is using this terminology of being in Christ. It's sprinkled here throughout these verses. This is what the glorious gospel does. Not only does it save you from sin and death, it magnificently unites you, binds you together with Jesus Christ. And so we're learning about four advantages that are ours as Christians because of our union with Christ. We saw the first two last week. 
First, we saw that our union with Christ changes our status before God. That now we're those who are called sons of God. That now those who are sons of God can claim to enjoy the full status of God's people. Our relationship with God is established because of our union with Christ. It is our faith in the Son of God that makes us sons of God. And this status change is great because it brings us into the family of God. What other family would you want to be in? What other family would you want to be a part of than say, I am a part of God's family? We also saw, number two, our union with Christ changes our view of self. Paul turns and says, how do you relate to self? Who are you really? This is, at the most basic level, our understanding of identity. Where do you get your identity from? How do you know who you are? What is it that makes you, you? And how many people get sidetracked into believing that they can make their own identity? They can conjure it up themselves. That they decide for themselves how they want to be identified. For the Christian, our identity is found in Christ and is given to us by Christ. All of the searching, all of the looking is over when you know Christ. You don't have to go out there and try to find out who am I, what is my identity. No, it's secure and you know it in Jesus Christ. That identity begins with this idea of baptism. We're united with him in a death like his. We're united with him in a burial like his. We're united with him in a resurrection like his. And it's also described as putting on a garment. We are those who are clothed with Christ's righteousness. And not only that, we also are seeking to be more like Christ. We're seeking to imitate Christ. So who is it when someone looks at your life that they see? The identity that is you. Brings us to our third advantage. Our union with Christ changes our view of unity. Our union with Christ changes our view of unity. Paul has just spoken of being clothed in Christ. We have put on Christ. Now imagine for a moment, if you would, that you come to church and someone is wearing the exact same clothes as you are. How do you react? You might find it funny. You might try to laugh it off. Maybe you could be a little bit embarrassed. If you are a certain age, you could be mortified. There's nothing worse than being found to be wearing the same thing as someone else in church. But this is where I think we often go wrong. We only imagine that we're wearing the same thing as someone else. We must stop imagining, my friend. We must see the spiritual reality that is all around us. We must pray that God would so open our eyes to this magnificent reality that we would know it, that we would see it, and that the truth is this. We are all wearing the same thing, and it's Jesus Christ. We've divested everything that would divide us We've thrown away everything that would cause division. Our union with Christ is gloriously displayed in our union with one another. 
It's important to understand what Paul is doing here as we get now into verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Some might want to think that Paul is being a political revolutionary here. He's trying to overthrow a culture or overthrow society as he knows it. Paul, we must understand, is trying to lead the church in the truth. If you think that Paul is trying to be a political revolutionary, it will get you into trouble in these verses. People have tried to use this verse to promote feminism or to promote androgyny. People might even say, well, look, Paul promotes slavery. I think if we take a closer look at these, we will see how this statement is actually more countercultural than we might think. So let's begin to take these categories and work through them for a moment. Uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Jews and Greeks uh, did not have uh, social circles that they ran in together. They were separate. You had the Jews and you had the Greeks or the Gentiles. Jews thought that such a close association with Greeks would make them unclean. Greeks thought of their own superiority over the Jews, their dominance of their philosophy, their thought, their way of life. To bring Jews and to bring Greeks together is no small task. They wouldn't even eat together. But here Paul says that now these Jews and these Greeks have come together that their Jewishness or their Greekness does not get in the way of them coming together. Turn, if you would, for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16 to remind us of this unity that we have in the church. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16 say this. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might what? Create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jews and Greeks hate each other. But what did Jesus Christ do? What did God do through Jesus Christ? That dividing wall of hostility, that dividing wall that no one could tear down, that dividing wall that was too great and too strong and too big and people thought there is no way there's ever going to be peace. Jesus Christ tore down that wall and he made in its place one new man. What is there that Jesus can't do? Why would we ever dare think that we would build that wall back up? 
Why would we ever let external things like the things here be put in place to build up a wall? Paul also talks about those who were slave or free. There were slaves in Paul's day, but Paul's statement is something shocking, actually. Because what Paul does is he actually elevates the status of slaves. Slaves were property. They were nothing. You wouldn't give them anything. They would have no status, whatever. But now, Paul treats them like they're no longer property, property, but like they are those who are in Christ, that they are people in Christ. You might even think of what Paul says to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. He had a slave who ran away named Onesimus. And Paul writes to Philemon. He, he's encouraging Philemon to take back this slave Onesimus. And he says this to Onesimus in Philemon, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul has seen everyone who is in Christ. That even this person, even this person of low class or no class or low socioeconomic status, whatever we want to say, we might think that they're nothing, but Paul is saying they're everything in Christ. And then he says, no male and female Paul most likely has this connection of male and female that goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 27. You remember what it says there? God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Paul draws our minds to the fact that both men and women have been created in the image of God from the very beginning. And Paul, by saying this, actually would have also elevated the view of women in the culture. Equity of sexes would have been something new and noteworthy in ancient culture. And this would also have a very practical application. Think about what the false teachers were saying to the churches in Galatia. They were saying, if you want to truly be a son of Abraham, if you truly want to be saved, what is it? You have to be circumcised. It would put a wedge between men and women because only men could receive that right, but women would be left on the outside. So even here, by Paul saying men and women could have a very practical application because what the Galatians were doing was driving a wedge even between men and women. And notice, as you think about these groups, the Jews and the Greeks, the slave and the free, the male and female what is it that's happening here that Paul is talking about? Paul is talking about nothing less than reconciliation between these people. Reconciliation between people who cannot be recognized or cannot be reconciled in the world's view. How is it possible? How is it possible to reconcile such groups? Because we have been reconciled to God. It's because that we've been reconciled to God that we can be reconciled to one another. It's because we've been reconciled to God that this great chasm has been bridged that we look here and we say, whatever chasm there is in this world between people can be bridged, 
can be reconciled in Jesus Christ. We must be careful to think about what is Paul, is, Paul is doing here. He's not wiping away all distinctions. He's not saying that there is no distinction that would set these people apart. He is no, not, not saying that you should try to rid yourself of what makes you distinct as a man or what makes you distinct as a woman. What, it, what Paul is saying is that all of these people have the same access to God through Jesus Christ. All of these people are saved the same way. No one is closer or further away to God than the other. When it comes to salvation, there is no external distinction that makes it, that makes it more advantageous to you. All who have come to Christ have the same status, even though they might not all have the same function. We can see something like this even in the Trinity. They are equal, yet they all have different roles to play. The differences still exist. We cannot deny that. But because we are in Christ, they will lose all their power that divides us and keeps us from losing fellowship and unity with one another. And we must keep in mind here that Paul is addressing this in the context of salvation. Who is it that has advantage when it comes to salvation? Who is it that is kept from coming to Christ? No one. We are all sinners, we are all dead, we are all ungodly, none is righteous. These are the ones that God saves. It is not what makes us distinct, but it's actually what makes us all of the same, that we are all miserable sinners saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone. I love what John Calvin says about these verses. He says this, Paul means that when it is a matter of salvation, we must, men must not become like peacocks, displaying their fantails, standing, gazing at their own feathers. No, we must exclude any thought of our own worthiness and trample it underfoot, realizing that it is a stumbling block which will hinder us from approaching Jesus Christ. Have you become a peacock? Like he says there, standing gazing at your own fantail. I dare say all that you'll be left with is a backache and cross-eyed. How do you know if you're gazing at your own feathers? Who is it that you say that you're superior to? Who is it that you say, well, at least I'm not like them? Sounding all the while like a Pharisee. Here is the seed of superiority. I am more superior because of my ethnicity, my background, and my upbringing. I am more superior because of my class, my socioeconomic station, business experience, life experience. I am more superior because of my gender or my sex. I am more superior because of my conscience. I have a better sense of what is right and wrong. My care is more superior. No one loves these people like I love these people. My, my sacrifice is more superior. Look at how much I give. 
We are going to use whatever we think we possess to our advantage so that we lord our superiority over our brothers and sisters. But that will only ever lead to damage and destruction and division in the life of the church. And you can try to cloak it with a veil of spirituality. You can try to cloak it with biblical terms. You can even try to veil it in prayer. But behind it is nothing less than odious, heinous, sinful pride. Christ calls us to check all of our superiority at the door. All of your pharisaical worthiness must be killed and we must realize that we have no advantage in and of ourselves that in any way makes us commendable before God. All of your privileges depend solely on being connected to Jesus Christ, which is entirely by faith. And this, if this is truly our hearts, we will not desire to add anything to the grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. God forbid that we would think that we could add anything to God's grace. You are saved by grace alone. Everything that you have, everything that you are is because of God's grace. What is it that you have that you have not received from him? Where is the sense of superiority that's hiding in your heart that needs to be rooted out? Where is it that you think that you are better, more together, more spiritual? How many walls of distinction have you erected in your heart which actually keeps you from doing what you're supposed to be doing, loving the brothers and sisters of the church? Whatever it is, that makes you think yourself more commendable in the church, more commendable before God, all of those worldly external judgments, none of them get you ahead in the economy of God. Pride is deceitful. Pride will try to weed its way in when you're not looking, when maybe you're not even thinking about it. And it's looking for soil to plant itself in. Is the soil of your heart primed and ready for pride? Or is it saying, pride will have no place here in my heart. So then, our view of unity changes, doesn't it? Because the Bible tells us that this is not unity that we create. The world says something different. Let's get together, let's unite, let's create oneness that will bring about peace and revolutionize the world and such unity that might save the world. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's see if we can build something great. The heart of the people of this world are no different than the heart of the people who tried to build the Tower of Babel. (laughs) But what does God's word tell us here? What does the Bible say? For you are all one. That is the reality. We are one now. Don't make yourselves one. You can't do it. 
You can't unify on your own. Rather, you are made one in Christ Jesus. Do you recognize that reality? When you look at your brother and sister in Christ, do you think to yourself, we are one. We are united in Christ. We have a bond that is greater than any other bond that is in this world. Our view changes because we can't create this oneness, but we can and we are called by God to maintain unity. We can't create unity, but we can destroy it. How how we can destroy it. We have to fight that urge because our flesh desires to destroy it. Our flesh looks for ways to drive a wedge. Our flesh looks for those tiny little specks, unimportant thing and unimportant things, and blows them up. We are experts at making mountains out of molehills. What happens when we do that? The important things, the gospel ministry, the glory of God and the kingdom of God, the discipleship of believers, the evangelism of unbelievers, the advancement of the gospel in our lives and in the world gets pushed to the periphery. The preeminence of Christ that was supposed to magnify, be magnified in our life gets drowned out by something else. And I wish that we would say, God forbid that. God forbid that the preeminence of Christ would ever get drowned out by anything else in my life, in this world. Did you hear what it said in our reading today? That we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look for a moment at these categories again here in these verses. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are not so different from the many problems that we find in our world today, are they? You read the newspaper, you read articles online. What do you see? What problems? What divisions do you see in the world today? Ethnicity divides, class divides, gender divides. And what does the world say to these problems? We need to figure them out. We need to save the world through our activism in these matters. We need to advance and progress through with worldly solutions. And how do we answer as the church? How do we respond as Christians? I fear that the world is too often allowed to set the agenda. Too often and easily, the worldly approach enters into our minds. Remember, the world has no frame of reference to God. They have no frame of reference for what sin really is. They have no answer for the problem They have no response that they can create in the heart and soul of mankind. So, are we to fall into the trap and look for a solution to all of these problems? No. Why? Because all of these problems have found their solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does everyone need? Everyone needs the gospel. 
People should hear and must see the solution in the lives of the church and in the proclamation of what the church says. And if you would recoil at that and say, the answer of the gospel is too simplistic, my brothers and sisters, that is the beauty of the gospel. God created the gospel on one level to be simple, simple enough to deal with the most complex problems that we can face in our world. Yet the simplicity of the gospel is stronger than men. The simplicity of the gospel is wiser than man. It is more glorious than man. And it is able to do what man in all of his striving could never do. And it absolutely humbles, humbles us so that we say this, we have no reason to boast before God. He is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom God made to be our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast what? In the Lord. Stop boasting in the way you think you can fix the problem. You can't. I can't. But God can. And the way that God fixes the problem through the gospel, guess what? He gets all of the glory. You get none of it. And then, (laughs) this is beautiful, isn't it? Then we rejoice. We say, we don't want any of the glory. We want God to get all of the glory. And so we stop looking for solutions in this world that are not there. And we find the solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other message that we have been entrusted with other than the gospel. The gospel and the gospel alone is the power to save. For everyone who believes... Do you want people to be brought together? Do you want to see love? Do you long for unity? How do you do that? I fear that too often we talk about unity. Be unified, be unified, and we talk not enough about what is it that makes us unified, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You proclaim the gospel, what's going to happen? People are going to be unified. People are going to come together. People are going to have their eyes lifted up above all of the petty, worthless things of this world and see the glory of Jesus Christ and come together in love and be bound together in unity. Something that the world will never know. But what a testimony to the world. What a testimony that what they see in us and what they see here at this church is something unlike anything that they could ever produce with all of their striving, with all of their effort, with all of their strength. We are those who want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are one and it's what has brought us together and now we must maintain that unity as we cling to the gospel and as we fight for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, let the reality that we are one in Christ sink into our our heads and into our hearts. Let us be those who check our superiority at the door. Let us be those who say, 
No one is closer to the gospel. No one is more worthy of the gospel. No one is more deserving of the gospel than another. Let us not be those who are gazing at our own tail feathers, thinking about how beautiful we are, about how great we are, about how we have it all together, about how we know more. Humble us. Humble us by the power of your word. Show us areas, O oh Lord, where we're prone to think of ourselves as something, as something special, as something that we possess or something that we have, and that's totally devoid of Jesus Christ. And Father, to think that if we long to see people reconciled in this world, it starts with reconciliation to God. And so, Father, I pray, if there's someone here today who is not reconciled to you, who is not at peace with you, who is not a part of your family, who is in that category of the lost, that today our Savior would seek and find them. He would open up their hearts to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. They would repent and turn from their sins and say, today, I'm going to follow Jesus. Today, I'm going to receive those advantages that I cannot create on my own. Today I'm going to know grace like I've never known it before, saving grace. Father, I pray that our hearts would be moldable and pliable to your word and to your will. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.